Welcome to State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Today, our guest is Roger Earl, founding member of Fog Hat. Listen as we discuss his musical inspirations, what it was like in his household musically growing up, and how his career progressed and took off. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Josh. Hi, Roger. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. I'm out here. I'm at home at the moment, out here on Long Island, um, east of Torquay, near Port Jefferson on the North Shore. Um, it's a piece of heaven on earth out here. It's uh, Actually, when I got off the boat in 1972, uh, this is where I landed, and uh, I met some people here, and they were very friendly, so I decided to stay. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, and I mean, you you've uh, you've got a you've got fishing right out your back door. You've got everything you need. It sounds like. Yeah, um, I live just off of Long Island Sound. Um, striped bass, uh, bluefish, fluke, which are a, a big, large flounder. Hooked one the other day. Got it right into the boat, and the hook pulled out. Oh. It had to be at least had to be at least eight eight pounds. I mean, I think they call them doormats. Um, but never mind, he'll uh, live for another day. I would have bashed him in the head and eaten him. Oh! <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm an avid fisherman, um, uh, so this is fine. I, I've been fishing since I was about five or six years old, I think. My father first took me. I learned to fly fish when I was seven. Um, I couldn't afford... I was growing up in... Um, Southwest London, and there was there was uh, there wasn't much trout fishing around there, but um, my parents used to take me on holiday into uh, Devon and Cornwall and to Wales, where there was some really good trout fishing. So, uh, but I couldn't afford the license. I don't know why they like you have to have a license when you're eight years old, but never mind. <laughs> so I would poach, <laughs> but that was. Uh, but I used to fish for um, sea trout, which is sea run brown trout and uh, they, they feed at night uh, when they get into the rivers they, they feed unlike uh, you know Atlantic salmon so uh, when the bailiff would come along he'd have his flashlight and bet then I could run but I always get a license now <laughs> <laughs> support your fishing so you grew up in South London yeah and uh, uh, was there a lot of music in your household did you grow up with what musical influence did you grow up with um, my father uh, played piano. Uh, he was um, he worked at Aston Martin's at their original factory in Feltham. He was a panel fitter. Uh, he fit uh, you know like doors and the dashboards and stuff like that. So there was always pretty exotic cars outside when I was growing up. Dad played piano, somewhat in the style of uh, <coughs> Fat Swaller, uh, sort of like rather heavy-handed left hand uh, he could sing and mum could sing too um there was always music in the house we uh, we were the you know we had a record player ever since i can remember um we used to have a grunted tape recorder and we'd tape stuff off of the uh, radio um and um actually what kind of father, things were you taping off the radio back then uh, just um there would be live stuff on the bbc um, there would be there would uh, there would be sort of like American musicians that would come over, and the BBC would be doing a special. So we'd attach these things to the speakers on the back, and uh, I don't know about the quality, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> well, there was obviously well, there was obviously a care about uh, about music and and the love of music there to go to those efforts. Yeah, well, um, Dad being a piano player, uh, I think I was about. 10 or 11, Jerry Lewis had just released his first single. I can't remember if it was Great Balls of Fire or a um, whole lot of shaking going on. But the B-side was Me, Woman Blues. And uh, he, he brought the single home and um, he said, yeah, have a this boy, son. He can really play the Joanna. And I said, OK, but I remember him talking about the B-side. 
that was me, Mormon Blues, and uh, about uh, about six months later or so, Jerry Lee came over to England and was touring, and Dad took me to see him. And uh, as my mother used to put it, he was never the same since. <laughs> it addled his brain, that rock and roll. Actually, my mum was uh, a huge music fan. She actually had a really good voice too. Um, there was always music in the house, not always music that I appreciated, I don't think, but um, it was, uh, I had some really, my parents were really cool. They weren't horrible. I was the horrible one. I think if you don't really upset your mum and dad, especially your mum, you haven't really grown up properly, have you? No. <laughs> no. Actually, I, 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 no, I love my mum. She was, um, she was a wonderful soul. It was um, very bright and... Uh, yeah, she was something else. So that was, was the the start of your like passion towards rock and roll. Yeah. So I went to see Jerry Lee Lewis. Um, my older brother Colin was starting to learn to play piano. Um, he was a Jerry Lee Lewis fan. Little Richard was uh, was big in our house. Um, also, uh, Johnny Cash. My older brother, even though Johnny Cash didn't have a piano player in his band. Uh, didn't have a drummer either back then on you know the Sun record label and uh, but I was probably the only 12 or 13 year old riding my bike to school in, in southwest London singing Johnny Cash songs uh, she loves you big river more than me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I never got to see Johnny Cash live but um, his music transcends time as far as I'm concerned the stories you know, simple story straight ahead. Um, but uh, And he always had such a, a clear voice as to, to who he was. Uh, yeah, his, yeah. His his last album with Rick Rubin was right, just spectacular right. with, with the songs that were picked and, and, and just his voice completely changed what those songs were and what we knew yeah. them as and, and, and brought a different clarity to it and a different vision to it in a beautiful way. He, he was um, he was a real poet, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, uh, I, I've seen a number of his um, TV shows and stuff, and I think it was fascinating for somebody because I mean he, his taste in music. You know, uh, Bob Dylan. Um, I mean, he would have all sorts of people on it. Uh, you know, on his shows, which I thought was really cool. Um, I would have loved to have met him, but. Um, uh, I went to his, um, what do they call it, museum in uh, Memphis, so, uh, sorry, Nashville, and, uh, you know, got, I got the T-shirt, had a picture <laughs> taken with him. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then, of course, I discovered um, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, stuff like that, especially Muddy Waters. It was a, 19, a 1961... He did a live album called uh, the Newport Jazz Festival, and he had his band, and it was, I think, even to this day, it's, it's one of the most incredible live records ever. If anybody out there wants to hear some uh, real American music, Muddy Waters live at Newport, it was, um, it moved me, and it it was really that record that I think made me want to play. I couldn't play like um, the drummer. Who was, play, was the drummer on that record? Muddy had two or three different drummers. Um, and it wasn't Sam Lay. Uh, Francis Clay. Uh, he was an incredible drummer. A lot of drummers that played like in blues bands back then were jazz drummers. Um, but I guess they had to earn a living somehow. And uh, when uh, Muddy turned to the electric guitar, yeah, he was. I actually, I got to play with Muddy in uh, 1977. Met him a uh, couple of times. Beautiful man. Um, it sounds like that was kind poet. of a long time musical dream come true there. Yeah, it was. Um, 1977, um, Foghat did a tribute to the blues at the New York Palladium. And it was my father's 60th birthday. And I brought mum and dad over because I had. Uh, we were all doing very well. Actually, my wife says if I had a dime, I'd have more money than cents, but that's another story. 
<laughs> anyway, mum and dad come over and uh, we're backstage. There was John Lee Hooker. We were basically the house band. We're back in John Lee Hooker, Murray, uh, Paul Butterfield, Eddie Bluesman Kirkland, um, Johnny Winter. And uh, so we're backstage and I introduce mum to Muddy Waters and I say, Mum, Dad, this is Mr. Muddy Waters. Mr. Waters, Mum and Dad. And I, there's their youngest hanging out with his uh, musical heroes. Muddy was a beautiful man. He really was the way he uh, conducted himself. That He was like just a really genuine person. Um, and I heard some stories also about the people who actually were in his band and stuff. He, he used to treat them really well. Um, yeah, he was uh, he was a hero, hero of mine. Him and uh, you know, a number of other sort of great blues men. Uh, this is a land of music: um, uh, jazz, blues, rock and roll, gospel. Um, this is where it all comes from. Um, probably you know, uh, the original sort of folks that came here from Africa and also from Europe. Europe would, you know, like a lot of the folk sort of melodies and stuff. Uh, and of course, the folks that came from Africa brought their rhythms and, and songs. And uh, my brother used to say, anything other than three chords you have to view with a certain amount of suspicion. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm a rock and roller. So when did you get your start um, musically? You, you were... When did you pick up drums specifically? Um, actually, uh, I, it, was around the, it was after I saw Jerry Lee, and um, I actually started playing piano. But, um, I don't know, it was a little bit confusing for me. Well, actually, the piano is a, is a, a percussive instrument anyway. But um, my brother was playing, my older brother was playing piano and learning to play, and Dad played, so it didn't seem like a good idea having three piano players in the family. Um, so uh, I, said, I said to my Dad, I would work, after, I'd work three days uh, after school, and on Saturday mornings, I worked in a bakery, so I had, you know, I had my own money. But you know, we weren't sort of well off or anything. But I was, I was saving my own money. I said, Dad, I want to get a motorbike. And he said, Well, I'm not helping you with that, son. And I said, Well, you had one, <laughs> but I. <laughs> he wasn't 13. Uh, I don't know what I thought <laughs> I was going to do with a motorbike at 13. But anyway, and I said, Well, I, I, I want to, I want to get a drum kit. And he said. Okay, well, I, uh, he had a friend that he worked with who was a drum teacher. Um, actually, he was, quite, he was really quite famous. Uh, he played with a number of um, jazz musicians that came over from the States and played in England, and also a number of uh, drummers actually went to him for lessons. His name was Chris Hewitt. I think I started when I was 12 or 13, somewhere around there. Once a week, I would go there, and I would have my Henry Adler uh, book of snare drum rudiments, Buddy Rich's <laughs> snare drum rudiments, and so I, I started. I was do that for about a uh, couple of years, and then just before uh, my fifteenth birthday, I'd saved up a bunch of money and. Um, my teacher said, you can get a drum kit. I mean, so dad signed on the dotted line. I put half the money down and, uh, and I bought it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was it. Um, <clears throat> you know, musicians are, um, I think, inherently selfish. Um, we really don't care about anything other than playing mm -hmm. probably why uh you know uh, so many musicians have got screwed over over the years because we play for free uh you come and play over here uh, you know i've got a gig yeah sure we're we getting paid no all right what time do you want me there mm -hmm. like, <laughs> uh, um you know it's um it's a love of music 
it's a you know it's a real passion and um, you know I was I think I'm one of the fortunate few in this world who gets to earn a decent living as something I love doing so uh, it's nice to be able to give it back from time to time yeah and so you started in a you started in a band at what age when did you got a kid at 15 and what when did you start playing out with other people um there was there's some uh, friends I went to school with in high, high school. Uh, one of my best friends, Dave, we're still good friends, but he lives in England. Um, they had a band ever since they were like 10 or 11 called the Concords. Of course they were that. Then I was about, around, when I was about 16, 16 or 17, somewhere around there, uh, my friend Dave, uh, the bass player, knocked on my door and said, would you, you want to join the band? Because their drummer, um, he wasn't very good actually. Um, so uh, I got the gig and um, Ray Dorsett uh, was the lead singer who I'd known um, uh, since I was I don't know, seven or eight. He went on to be the lead singer in Mungo Jerry. My brother, Colin, went on to play piano in the band Mungo Jerry. In the summertime, ba da 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 da. Mm -hmm. No, stop singing, Roger. <laughs> <laughs> you keep it up. You go for it. <laughs> no, no, we don't want to do that. Um, and um, it was myself, Dave, uh, and Ray Dorsett, and we were then called the Tramps. Um, and, and what kind of about, were you in? Were you doing rock and roll music from the beginning with that? Yeah, but blues, rock and roll. Um, yeah, country blues, rock and roll. Yeah, that's that's what we played. Ray was writing some original music, um, and uh, we did a couple of demos and stuff, but nothing was really happening. And we were just a trio, and uh, I was working as a commercial artist up in London. That's how I paid for my cymbals and drums. Um, Things sort of slowed down a bit. There was an, uh, at the time, um, apparently trios weren't sort of very popular. Everybody wanted to have like horn sections. So it wasn't, we weren't getting too many dates. Anyway, um, we were, I was always looking for, you know, to earn a living playing. And I auditioned for Savoy Brown. Um, I didn't get the first audition. Uh, Somebody else, I think, Bill Bruford got the first job and then he left or whatever, like a month or so later. And it was actually, I have to thank Lonesome Dave for it because um, I auditioned the first time, but I didn't get the job. And then they called me back about a month later because we had the same agency as Savoy Brown. And uh, Dave is, Dave Lonesome Dave is, uh, is quoted as saying, why don't you give that bloke who had the uh, the image uh, a chance again? So I went back to the Nags Head in Battersea. There's a pub upstairs. I brought my dad's car, dragged the drums up the stairs. I played for about two or three hours, I think. Then I started packing the drums up and they said, uh, where, where are you going? I said, uh, I've got a day gig. I'm going back to work. They said, well, we've got a gig in Birmingham tonight. That was it. <laughs> but uh, So that's a I pretty quick hire. Yeah. Uh, I didn't get paid for a while, though. <laughs> so, I, so I had to hang on to a typ typical blues uh, band. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, it sounds funny now, but the, the manager is Harry. He was Welsh. And... Uh, I did the first week I did about three or four dates and we were doing about three or four dates a week. You know, we were going to Newcastle, Birmingham, uh, Manchester. And I was, and I had a day job as a, as a, as a commercial artist. And, um, so I get back to London about four or five in the morning, looking like somebody the cat dragged in. So of course I started turning up late to work and they say, and I said, well, you know, the bus was late. They said, so where did you play last night, Rog? <laughs> <laughs> Busted. <laughs> um, so you're saying were, that you were doing commercial, as a commercial artist. Exactly what yeah. did that entail? Um, I would do uh, industrial design. I would actually do the artwork for uh, for the printer. Um, 
um, actually, I, I started working as a commercial artist when I was 15. I left home when I was 15 because um, London was the place to be. I wanted to go and see bands. My mum wouldn't give me a front door key. It was probably wise. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, had to, I, had to, I moved into an apart, a flat uh, nearer London. But... Um, That brings back some memories. Mm. Okay, well, I'm sorry. What was the question again? So you were talking about the the work you were doing as a commercial artist. But you you essentially got a drum kit and left the house and moved to London. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, Commercial art was great. I I was good at what I did. um, um, And I I managed to sort of hold it together. Um, And by today's standards, you were basically a graphic designer. When I joined Savoy Brown, I was about 20, I guess. Um, that's when it got difficult um, because we were traveling all over the country and I was turning up late and not turning up at all sometimes. Um, they were very kind, but um, after about uh, six or seven weeks, I think I had handed in my notice, but I still hadn't been paid. And I would go into the uh, our manager's office and say, uh, Harry, um, you know, I haven't got paid yet. We, uh, it's, I've been in the band two weeks. You haven't got paid, Boyle? Oh, well, we'll see about that then. So, uh, <laughs> another two weeks would go by, and uh, I'd say, Harry, um, I haven't, you know, I haven't, haven't been paid yet, and, you know, we've done, like, you know, a dozen or so gigs. You haven't got paid, Boyle? Oh, we'll see about, this went on for about six or seven weeks. I, I don't know if I ever got paid anyway, but um, eventually they started paying me £12.50 a week. I gave up my day job, which was considerably more than maybe close to like £100, £150 a week. I was doing overtime and stuff like that and freelance work. So uh, typical musician gave it all up. <laughs> no regrets. <laughs> yeah. So So you were with Savoy Brown. Yeah. And then... Um, you left Savoy, Savoy Brown with a couple other members of the band to start Foghat, is that right? Yeah, uh, myself and uh, uh, Lonesome Dave left uh, Savoy Brown. Um, we, we left, actually, and, and it was quite amicable. I'm, I'm still very good friends with Kim Simmons. Um, it was just time for a change. Uh, I think Tony Stevens got fired. He was a bass player. No, he was a good bass player, though. Um, so we left, um, then we had to find uh, another guitar player. So we, we auditioned and we met Rob Price, who was absolutely fantastic. And, um, but we couldn't get any work in England. Our ex-manager um, basically blackballed us. He managed Savoy Brown and Chicken Shack, which were two of the largest bands in, the, in England at the time. We'd already toured the States as well with Savoy Brown and we're doing well. But um, we couldn't really get any work. We did a three-week tour with Captain Beefheart that um, the somebody who worked with uh, Warner Brothers, which was the parent company of Bearsville Records, um, got us some dates. And then our first album was released in the States and we started getting some noise and we booked our first tour over here. We actually had to play for free the first date um, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It was a festival in the park. That was our first date. But we hadn't got our, um, I think it's an H2 visa you have to get. They hadn't come through. We'd applied for them. They were supposed to be here, but anyway, we had to, we played in the park for free anyway. But typical people of the Midwest, as soon as we got our visas, they sent us our money. Mm-hmm. They say that those people in the Midwest are the very best. <laughs> I'd have to it. agree with that. <laughs> There's a song in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Somebody's already done it, I'm sure. <laughs> So Oshkosh, Wisconsin, was your big start in the U.S. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to tell a friend of mine that he runs the Grand Theater in Oshkosh. Oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I, 
I, I think I'll I'll need to put a bug in his ear that that was your your first U.S. gig for Foghat. It was. It was. Uh, we played in um, played in the park. Like it was put on by the um, the city. Thirteen hundred dollars. I think we would get it. We got paid. Yeah. Um, eventually. <laughs> uh, but they no, they sent us some money. Um, we uh, actually the first tour we toured here. For, it seemed like a year, and we played anywhere and everywhere. Bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, um, for free, got paid for some gigs. All we did was tour, tour, and tour. And the record company that um, supported the tour, well, actually, it was our royalties that supported the tour, so we didn't really get any money. Um, but it worked, you know. Um, it was, a, and actually, playing back then was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was great. We were and, tired, but there again, we were young. <laughs> and you know, back then, what was um, you did you you were had recorded an album before you toured the U.S. Yes, right. Then, and what yeah. was that? What was that songwriting and and uh, recording process like back then? Uh, our first album we recorded um, Rockfield in Wales. Um, Dave Edmonds uh, produced it for us. Uh, Though initially we were just doing it ourselves. Albert Grossman, uh, maybe I should backtrack a little bit. Um, once we put the band together, uh, we did uh, we did six or seven songs at Abbey Road Studios. Recorded them. I don't think they were there was they actually made it to the first album, but um, rearranged somewhat. Um, Albert Grossman, who was the manager of uh, Peter, Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan, the band, Janis Joplin. Um, he came over to England, to, to England, to London with the band and um, Todd Rundgren was with him. And um, we rented a, a club in North London, in Islington, and uh, in the afternoon, and Albert came down to see us. Um, our manager at the time convinced him that it would be a good idea for him to come and see us, which he did. It was just him. We set up our high watts or whatever they were in this smelly, dingy little pub. And um, we played six or seven songs for Albert Grossman. And uh, when we started playing, he went, <laughs> we were a rock and roll band. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, uh, he, I told this story many times, so I should be able to remember it. Um, <clears throat> Albert uh, used to do this. And he said, so uh, is there anywhere we can get some uh, tea and biscuits? And I said, yeah, there's a hotel across the road. That, you know, we can get that there. So we, the, the band goes over there with their manager. Um, we sit down and Albert orders tea and biscuits. And we're sitting there, and then <clears throat> the tea and biscuits arrive, or tea and cakes actually. And uh, I start pouring the tea and stuff. And so Albert says, "Well, uh, hey, let's do it." <laughs> and that was it. Everybody else in the world, every other major and minor record company, turned us down, but Albert heard something that he liked. Or maybe he just sort of wanted us on his record label. Um, but so any of you other musicians out there, though the world has sort of changed a lot. Um, you know, you, you just got to stick at it. Um, he was the only person that saw something in the band. He made lots of money from us. <laughs> <coughs> and we did okay too. Thank and, you, Albert. And so back then you guys were recording to tape, right? Yeah, yeah. And... And is that a versus recording now where digital is, is prevalent? What's, what, what do you see is the value in that process versus the value in digital? Well, you know, um, I'm not particularly, uh, aware and, and have 
great knowledge of all things recording. I know what I like. I know what I'm doing in the studio to tune drums and moving microphones around. But that's a whole nother uh, league for somebody. But yeah, it's changed the way you record. I mean, back then, well, we had our own studio here in uh, in New York uh, around 1979, 1980, somewhere around there. I think we built it. And, you know, a Neve board, which was like set of the art board, and we got a second hand one, was like a million dollars. Um, <clears throat> the building that we had, we rented initially, but it was that was like like a hundred thousand dollars. So, uh, whereas now a, you can get a board maybe for like between, I don't know, three. And five thousand dollars. Microphones are still expensive. You still need good microphones, but um, the whole world has moved on. I mean, I've just got all my records on CD now, and like apparently CDs are passe. <laughs> really? <laughs> I like CDs. They're like you know, you can still hold them, and then you get a little package on them, and you can read about what's on there. Well, I love that that we've we've gone now that now that streaming has really embraced. There's a there's an underlying movement of of vinyl that for people who really want to have something to hold on to and to have right that sleeve and 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 to really embrace the music that they love. It's our first album. It's being re-released. Nice. Yeah, I actually I did some liner notes on the back. Uh, I jabber away, and June 17th. Uh, they've got what is that? June seventeenth. June seventeenth. So that's gonna that will release the day after this podcast uh, yeah. airs. New vinyl, and actually, I did a really they did a really nice job, like with the artwork, and I told some. Told some stories on the back. No, no porky pies. Uh, they've got blue and gold. gold. Very cool. And will, will those be available whenever you play here in Marion in on at the end of July? Uh, when, when are they, they going to be available? Yeah. Oh, for the show. Yeah. July thirty uh, first. We could 31st. probably have them available. Yeah, no, we yeah, could definitely. Yeah, I, could, I can. I'll bring. I'll yeah. give it to our merch person. Yeah, for the thirty first. Yes. Yeah, the thirty first. Um, yeah, it was um, when I was asked to do the liner notes for it. It was because everybody else has passed on, but it was, it was, uh, it was nice to actually try and remember some of the stuff that went on there. Um, Dave Edmonds um, produced it. Uh, he, when we first, I booked the uh, the time there. Albert Grossman sent us ten thousand uh, dollars, and I booked time at Rockfield Studios in Wales. And we had a band house in uh, up in the Berkshire Downs where we rehearsed five days a week um, or six days, whatever it was, um, and then. I, bu I booked studio time and we were there. We took the day shift and which was like uh, midday to like, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, something like that. And then Dave Edmonds would do the night shift. And of course, you know, things would like cross over and uh, Dave Edmonds is an absolute genius. The man is just sort of brilliant, can, plays brilliantly and uh, we we were sort of struggling because we weren't um, how can I put it producers. We could play and we knew what we liked and uh, we were pretty good like with arranging stuff, but we needed somebody to produce. Anyway, we heard some of Dave's stuff and we're like we're knocked out. And I believe it's our man manager said to him, "Look, would you would you like to produce our record?" And Dave said, "Well, he said." Well, first of all, I got to finish my own record. So uh, when that's done, um, yeah, I, I, I'd said this many times, but I know our record wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful as it was. Um, Dave Edmonds can be blamed for that. 
he was uh, he's an absolute genius yeah um and uh, analog and he was he could do all sorts of things he um yeah an absolute genius so back then with tape did you have to take a lot more care in the recording process because of how expensive tape was um not uh well you had to treat it kindly yeah i mean but there again i um, it was a 24 track so but i remember dave edmonds um actually taking a razor and like slicing the the, the master 24 track and gluing it together and you know doing um and doing actual uh, physical edits to the tape itself yeah um and dave, dave listened to the music at ultra volume i mean just about anything really sounded good the way as loud as he had these huge tannoy speakers um whereas now like we mix on like small you know like things like this just to sort mm -hmm. of so you can hear but no dave had these huge speakers and it would the whole it was a barn that we we were living on a farm uh, and the whole building would shake when he was doing playbacks <laughs> uh <laughs> he's probably got a hearing problem i do anyway but i mean playing drums in rock and roll bands for uh, a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, your, your hearing takes a beating, but fortunately they have really good um, hearing aids these days. So uh, without it, it, I would be numb to the world. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun making this record. Um, and yes, as you talked about it, uh, they're re-releasing all sorts of stuff in vinyl now. So look at that. Yeah, you can grab that on June 17th, and then you can grab it here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center on July 31st. Yeah. You look, you look just a slightly, you look just slightly different in that picture, Roger. Well, I was, um, that was 60 years, no, 50 years ago. <laughs> so what would you say once you, once you started touring with that album, and once you were touring America, what's your like favorite experience from the road? I don't think there's any one. Well, there is one that, like I said, when I mentioned earlier, that 77, when we did the uh, Foghats tribute to the blues in 1977, which was filmed and recorded, which Warner Brothers hasn't seen fit to release. I don't know why, but um, they've got it hidden in their basement somewhere. In fact, I was out there uh, about four or five years ago and i suggested that maybe they should let me go down into their basement and see if we could find it and they said well you can't do that i said why the fuck not i mean this is like you know uh and the recordings were really good um but they don't want you going down and fiddling around but um there, there had to be at least like five hours of music I mean, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, uh, Johnny Winter, um, Eddie Bluesman Kirkland, uh, Paul Butterfield, and like we played with all of them. Uh, they had their own bands as well, but then we had a, a big jam at the end of the evening playing uh, Just Want to Make Love to You with Muddy leading. Um, yeah, somebody should really uh, get on Warner Brothers' case about that. That, that would be worth... Um, that sounds incredible. I mean, just... I mean, you... You're describing all of the legends of the blues world that right. they were all together in one place. And I have um, my uh, our front of house engineer, uh, Bob Coffey, uh, a number of years ago, put it on um, CD for me because he, uh, he had it on cassettes, a, a two track and then to cassettes. I don't know what happened to the two tracks. Who knows where that is? Uh, but I've got it all on um, CDs. So. Uh, they're stable. Um, I've listened to them. It's um, it's uh, it's pretty exciting actually. It's, uh, there's some cool stuff on there. Paul Butterfield was great, and of course Muddy was uh, uh, absolutely wonderful to play with. As was John Lee Hooker. Yeah, it was something else. And Johnny Winter, of course, was fantastic. And it, so one, I can't I can't conceive of what 
what that would be like for you to to engage with all of your heroes from growing up because it you know that's what you were listening to as you were coming up in the industry and it 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 was um something else and i get my parents got to sort of meet some of my heroes and um yeah that was probably a highlight um though there had probably been numerous highlights but um you know i always played in great bands um i always played with great musicians and i think you know that's of course it helps i mean it, uh, when you're playing with people like you know rod dave um and even and the current band you know um brian bassett on lead and slide guitar is an incredible player uh scott holt uh who's doing vocals and uh lead guitar i mean he toured with buddy guy for 10 years so we know he can play yeah and buddy was just here at the civic center uh right. last month yeah yeah, I've, I've met Buddy a number of times. What a beautiful man, absolute genius. And of course, Rodney O'Quinn uh, on bass, and uh, he sings a couple of songs as well now. So um, he toured with Pat Travers for just about ever. Then we saved him from that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're actually working on a new album now. We've um, we got stuck down in Florida for a few days, and uh, we're. we're We've got about seven or eight songs that we're just sort of fleshing out. I think we may have a week or two off in June. We'll probably get it done by the end of the year. And uh, I just like, you know, making new music and creating. And it's um, it's not like it used to be when, uh, you know, the red light would go on and you go... Because <laughs> it is... It is it can be stressful in the studio, but um, where we are now, everybody can really play and um, there's no red light. We just play until we've got something that we like and then do whatever we're doing. Or um, sometimes we just don't press the button at all and just play all day long. So um, you'd say that's the advantage of the digital world is right. that it, it's unlimited what you can record and put down without... Right. Yeah. Without worrying about the tape running out, or uh, <clears throat> right, yeah, yeah, right. The, the the cost of tape was expensive. Um, also, Brian Bassett, our lead and slide guitar player, is also our producer and engineer, and he's engineered and produced numerous artists. Still does actually to this day. So uh, we have um, the resident genius in the band as well. So uh, yeah, it's fun. I am. Um, I think we've got about seven or eight songs that we're working on. Um, two or three, but they were written by other people. We're doing a Rodney Crowell song. Oh, wonderful! Uh, yeah, no, he's he's one of my favourite writers. Uh, talked to him a couple of times. Um, we did one of his songs once before on um, in, in, our, in the mood for something rude album. We did uh, what did we do? Um, Ain't living long like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I talked to Rodney uh, a few years back. Um, our manager is friendly with his manager. And he said that when he heard that Foghat had recorded one of his songs, quote, I wore it like a badge of honor. <laughs> Thank you, Rodney. Yeah, the man's brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, I look forward to, to whenever that album comes out and the new music that you have coming. Um, especially with writers like Rodney Crowell involved and, and I mean, all incredible musicians that you're working with and, and moving forward with. And when, yeah. when you come to Marion, um, will you be playing, you'll be playing all of the, the, the classics that everybody knows. Um, yeah. are you working any of that new uh, material into to what you're doing now? Uh, no, we're not going to be doing any material. You know, we've recorded what, 20, 25 albums over the years so we have you've got a little bit to draw from there uh, yeah we've got a lot of material to pick from um <clears throat> there, there are a couple of songs um a few years back we did this uh we did an album called uh, earl and the agitators do you have the cd anywhere linda i have to get one um and it, it actually was basically the band that we have now um 
let's see. We were what well, we we were recording um, our last studio album, um, and we were like two or three songs short, and we weren't sort of uh, we sort of sort of came to a block. So myself and Scott Hull and uh, Brian Bassett were sitting in the studio, and we said, "Look, we need to come up with like three three songs, so that our album can be done." But typical musicians, instead of three, we wrote seventeen. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually it's that's that's it's called Earl and the Agitators, shaken and stirred. But it's actually what the band is now. Rodney O'Quinn, Scott Holt, Brian Bassett. Um, we couldn't just leave the songs alone, so we put out a record. There it is. That's it's awesome. Actually, it's, it's, um, I'm particularly proud of this record. So actually, we should really call it Fogcat, shouldn't we? Anyway. It sounds like it. Like the Agitators. And will that, be, some... will that be available at the merch table in Marion as well? I don't know. Probably. Um, I'm not in charge of merch. <laughs> I, I just bang. Uh, At this point, I don't think you should be in charge of merch. No, 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 no. no. I don't want to do that. <laughs> At a certain point in your career, you, you, don't, have to, you don't have to throw di records at the table anymore. I mean, you, you reach a certain uh, point. Actually, um, because of um, the COVID nightmare... Um, Pre-COVID, we would always go out and sign, uh, you know, so long as it was feasible. Um, you know, I love meeting the fans. You know, without them, uh, we'd be out of work. Uh, we wouldn't be out. Wouldn't, there would be nowhere to play. So, um, uh, and I, you know, and I'm a music fan. I still am. You know, I mean, I'm in awe of the people that I grew up. Um, and I think you can't forget how to be a fan. I mean, that's the reason you you play music. That's the reason you're involved in music. Anybody, if uh, that's the reason you do it, because you love music. It's sort of, um, I don't know, it's, a bit, it's life. What's it's your, what's your favorite, what's your favorite thing happening in music right now? Mm. I think the Rolling Stones are a really good band. They'll go a long way. Yeah, I've heard of them. <laughs> They're touring, and this guy McCartney, he's been back out on the road. Yeah, him too. Uh, oh, and uh, who's the other drummer? Um, pretty well known. Uh, Ringo. Yeah, he's he tours a again. little bit, yeah. Yeah, um, he always puts together a good band. He always puts together a great band, doesn't he? Uh, he does. And I didn't, yeah. up until recently, um, that once again talking about Rick Rubin, but uh, there, there's a... Uh, a documentary out with Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney and they go through and like dissect some of the tracks and pull out the different parts. I didn't realize how interesting Ringo's drum parts were until hearing them pulled out of the music. Well, uh, Ringo, Ringo plays for the song. I mean, you know, we can't all be, uh, Buddy Riches and, uh, be the lead drummer. Um, uh, no, Ringo plays with the song. He was, he was fantastic in the Beatles. Um, the way he uh, played, um, it was musical. His tempo, his feel, and like he, he did some classic, uh, you know, uh, fills. I mean, um, uh, you know, Ringo. You know, Ringo is um, Ringo is something. You know, he's a great drummer. The way he played, I mean, if you, I mean, if, uh, if you were a drummer and you tried to sort of dissect what he was doing, it would be, have you seen the special, the Beatles special? Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? And they're all sitting in a room going, well, look, do you think you could uh, like t turn that down a little bit? It's so loud. And, and, like they're, and they're writing all these great songs. I mean... Yeah, bands like that come along. I mean, it's amazing that they stayed together as long as they did, you know, with that much talent. Um, yeah, Beatles. Yeah, they started it for a lot of people, didn't they? Mm -hmm. But they always um, give credit to their musical heroes as well. You know, uh, like uh, 
you know, a lot of the soul musicians, rock and rollers, uh, blues artists as well, then we'd all be out of work if it wasn't for Chuck Berry. Well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should do another Chuck Berry song. Okay. Oh. <laughs> I don't think anyone would complain about that. No, no. And that could be another track on your album. Yeah, it's a quick story about Chuck. It's 1974. We're playing at a festival out, and I think it's San Diego. It was on the West Coast. Uh, Jay Gower's band are on. Chuck Berry's on, and uh, we played. And then Chuck Berry is on after us, and myself and Lonesome David, huge Chuck Berry fans. So we say to our manager, "Look, do you think you could like?" go up to Chuck Berry and ask him if we can have a picture taken with him. So he said, yeah, sure. So Chuck finishes his set, he's got his guitar, comes down the steps with his guitar, there's a convertible Cadillac with a rather attractive blonde sitting in there. And uh, he comes down the step and our manager goes up to him and says, excuse me, Mr. Berry, do you mind if you have a picture with, uh, with my band? And he says, sure, anytime, kept walking. The picture <laughs> is our manager trying to hold on to Chuck's um <laughs> so i never got to uh, meet chuck but um yeah there would be uh there are people like chuck berry um it would be uh there would probably be no rock and roll oh hold on a second somebody would have done it yeah no, they i mean you no had chuck berry you had jerry lee lewis you had I mean, and there all was, these there people was that just revolutionized rock and rollers long before that. You know, they called it bebop. It was when <clears throat> the jazzers started sort of laying down, you know, a, a beat as opposed to being. In fact, like I said earlier, most of the blues uh, musicians, the drummers, you know, were jazz musicians anyway. Um, yeah, jazz. Jazz and blues is where it's all started. Yeah, well, you got you had the blues and then you had jazz, so uh, that's where it comes from. Right here in this country, right here, right mm -hmm. here, all over New Orleans, Chicago. Probably even uh, some great music came out of LA. Well, out in the desert anyway, country. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Nashville, Memphis. Uh, can you imagine what it was been like? You can't imagine what it was like from a boy from Southwest London going up in London and dreaming of coming to America. Here I am. And now being a staple of the rock and roll world here. <laughs> I'm just like thousands, if not millions, of other people around the world who want to come to America, this great land. Needs some work, but I love this place. Mm -hmm. I love it. Land of music. And I, I don't think people quite understand that. Even to this day, this country gives music to the world, like, you know, with... Um, R&B and what they call, you know, rap and like new music. But <clears throat> the, you know, younger generation all over the world are, are listening to music that comes from this country. Um, I think it's because, in fact, I believe to my soul, it's because we have such a diverse society here with musicians and music that came from all over the world, you know, when, you know, 100, 200 years ago. That's what's made American music. It wasn't, it's not, you know, countries related to blues and jazz and they, it's this wonderful melting pot of music. And I think um, this country has given music to the world. And uh, I agree. And I, I think all, all genres today cross over in that way that, that, the blues and jazz and rock and roll influences now crossed over into country and, and country and pop have kind of merged their way into each other. And there's, there's remnants of folk in, yeah. in modern yeah. pop and yeah. in modern country now. And it's, it, it, it really speaks to what you were saying about it being an overall melting pot together yeah. and all of the musical influences overlapping each other. Yeah, actually I, I read somewhere that <clears throat> Dolly Parton's thinking of, um, doing a rock and roll record. I'll play. Yeah. Um, um, Frogcat would be a great backing up, back group, backing group. Uh, we could we could back up Dolly. I think she is just magic. She is. The amount of songs that that woman has written. Uh, I mean, For like, all genres too. Oh yeah. I mean like, what a voice. And and, and what a philanthropist. I mean, yeah, giving a back to the world in such a way. Beautiful person. 
Yeah, yeah, something else. So um, I put it out there in the world. Um, Folkat would love to uh, be Dolly's backup band on our next record. Yeah. <laughs> well, We've well, even got a studio. <laughs> see? Roger, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And, and I, I want to be mindful of your time and not take up too much of your time. But I, I've, I've loved hearing the background behind how everything got started and, and how everything came about. Well, uh, don't forget to promote this show that we're uh, doing. It's all for a good cause. Hopefully we'll make lots of money. We will. It's the Will Rock for Food annual presentation here in Marion this year featuring Foghat on July 31st here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. We're so excited to have you coming. Thank you, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Um, <coughs> Toad's going out. I've got to go and do something to the boat and lock it up and um, probably get dinner going. All right. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Roger. Same here, Josh. Pleasure. You can sit around and you think. Thank you for joining us for State of the Art Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, focusing on artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and events here in Southern Illinois, as well as national touring artists coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, such as today's guest, Roger Earl of Foghat. Foghat will be here at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center on July 31st as part of the fundraiser, We'll Rock for Food, that supports the Marion Ministerial Alliance they provide an amazing service as a food pantry and soup kitchen here in Marion, Illinois. Special thanks to AJ Rice as our associate producer. Also, thank you to Jeremy Todd for today's soundtrack. Tickets for Fog Hat can be found on MarionCCC.com. And now for the entire track of It's in the End by Jeremy Todd. You sit around and you think Think about terrible things Like how you will die Who's left you and why It's leaving your heart with a sting
most while you can Cause in the end It's all that matters The thumbprints you leave on their heart Sets you apart 